This podcast is proud to be part of the TalkSport Fan Network. TalkSport. Powered by fans. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. The TalkSport Fan Network is proudly supported by McDelivery, bringing you the food you love. McDelivery brings a top-tier lineup of food right to your door. No matter the results, you'll always be winning with McDelivery. Order now on the McDonald's app and you'll get rewards points delivered too. So that ordering today means some tasty rewards for tomorrow. Only via app at participating restaurants. 18 plus rewards registration required. Points only on menu items, delivery fee and terms apply. See mcdonalds.com. Hello everyone and welcome to the final podcast of this season, episode 38. This is the dedicated weekly podcast that has and will continue to go to the heart of all things Saints. And let's face it, there is never a dull day in and around St Mary's at the moment. I'm Ben Stanfield, the host of the Total Saints podcast. For the season finale, I've roped in three wise heads to support me. It's Adam Leach, Chief Sports Writer at the Daily Echo, Steve Grant, Saints season ticket holder and owner of Saints Web, and Simon Peach, journalist for the Press Association and of course a beloved Saints fan as well. How are we doing, chaps? How's everyone keeping? Yeah, Not bad. Yeah, decent. Good. Enjoying the summer. Glad it's all over. <laughs> that was my next question, Steve. I imagine everyone's relaxed that uh, both that we stayed up and that the season's finally over. I know I am. Yeah, it's it's been it's been a drag. Let's face it. Um, the only sort of moment, brief moment of it's come right at the very death, which is kind of a little bit of a throwback to the nineties, um, in kind of a little bit of a sort of. I suppose it's a bit of a good way in some aspects, but the fact that we even got ourselves into that mess is uh, slightly irritating. Yeah, yeah. What about you, Simon? I know, I know you've. Uh, I was going to ask you about, as Ralph says, watching. You, you watched a fair bit of Saints down the stretch, didn't you? Uh, so, what, what did you make of it all? Quite a frustrating and nerve-wracking watch. Uh, well, as Steve can vouch, because when I was driving back from Leicester, I called him up for about an hour just ranting. Um, uh, it was quite irritating, and I kind of gave up hope after Stoke nil-nil. Mm. But then they just kept bringing you back in. Uh, Leachy saw me at the uh, Leicester game as well, and I don't think I was in the best of moods. But no, um, you, you were you weren't in a good mood. Uh, but yeah, it, it's just draining experience, isn't it? Mm. But it's mm. it's not just draining from a fan perspective. I mean, I'm sure it's the same for Adam and I guess to Steve to an extent. You you know people at the club, people whose jobs are in jeopardy because some mercenaries can't be bothered to play to their ability, and it's just quite frustrating 
Yeah, but you you were never worried, Adam, were you? I mean, there was never one must-win game that we came across. So, uh, <laughs> no, yeah. I told you, mate, all along. I said it would be fine, didn't I? Yeah, you did. Though I am reminded of the uh, podcast we did early on when somebody did say that they thought they were going to get relegated, and I, I heartily laughed. You did laugh at the I 1%. Said, I was thinking that the other I day. Said, I said, yeah. it won't come to that, and yeah. how right I was. Good stuff. Well, no, as the, as the chaps say, it's been a heck of a roller coaster with uh, a lot more downs than ups, but Saints uh, clung on to Premier League survival, meaning that uh, we live to fight at least one more season in uh, England's top division. In this podcast, we're going to reflect on that season. We're going to discuss what uh, needs to happen this summer and going forward, as well as uh, chat about Ralph Krieger's interview with uh, selected media members earlier this week, which did include both Simon and Adam. This is Total Saints Podcast, episode 38. Well, as we all now know, Saints left it late, but managed to secure 17th place in the Premier League and survival, just about. Um, Adam, starting with you, now that the, the, the sort of dust has settled, I guess, it's a, a week on from the end of the season and the Manchester City game, but what are your um, overriding emotions and feelings about the season? Yeah, well, like the guy said, definitely relief that it's over, thank goodness. Um, and also relief that they actually managed to stay up in the end, which is uh, good news for everybody concerned. Um, but also, I guess, question marks over the future. And, and uh, we'll talk about the Ralph interview, I know. But, but what exactly have Saints learned from this season? What's going to change? Um, how is this going to be prevented from happening again? Uh, and I think there's some pretty significant questions that, that I still think remain largely unanswered. Um, so I, I think overall... You, you feel relief, but when you actually look back to the podcast and then what we were talking about at the beginning of the season, you um, you shouldn't uh, be too if you shouldn't be too clouded by the fact that they managed to string together eight points uh, in Mark Hughes's last eight games. Um, too much. I mean, I, I know I had a bit of a pop at them for the uh, over celebration against Swansea, and again, um, I was I was to be honest, I was slightly. Um, taken aback on the last day because I mean we'd we'd said hadn't we but after the Swansea game you know this is the day for for everybody to have their say if people are unhappy with with anything that's going on at the club now's time to have their say and I, I said 32,000 fans chanting we are staying up and I think that it's empowered Saints to continue in much the same way as they have this season so I think the whole thing um is to me is a it's been a it's been a bit of a surprise and I, I just hope that there isn't now a complacency that because they've got out of this situation that it's just business as usual. And Dusan Tadic was uh, the cheerleader at Swansea, Adam, and ended up in his pants after the uh, the, the, the Man City game when they'd lost 1-0. And it's not the first so. time he's done that, is it? It's, is it I'm not? Seeing, no. Bit, no, he's done it before yeah. as well. I mean, the man can't keep his clothes on. Yeah, I imagine you're like that in the press room after survival. You're just sort of prancing around in your pants in the, in the, the, the press room, are you? Well, it's not just after survival. <laughs> anytime, well. anytime, <laughs> anytime, any excuse. It's yeah. like you know, pants be... and cravat. Yeah, that's yeah, it exactly. Nice. Peachy loves it though. So, um, <laughs> I save it for when he's down. Yeah, well, I can imagine. <laughs> so, no. and Steve, you—I mean, you saw a lot of Saints, probably more than all of us, home and away um, this season. So, what did you make of make of it overall? I mean, was there there any players? Alex McCarthy probably screams out, but any other players that really came out of pluses at the end of the season? Not really. Um, Matt Target. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, he was he was he was excellent on loan at Fulham. Not that anybody at a club seems to be paying attention to it. Um, but 
it's difficult to really give anybody any sort of glowing reference. Mm. Um, I mean, McCarthy, McCarthy kind of won player of the season by default, having only played half the season. Um, he was good, but I wouldn't say necessarily exceptional. But he, I think the reason why he won player of the season was more that, I mean, combination of the, the other 10 players being so hopeless most of the time, mm. but also the fact that Everybody was so shocked that a goalkeeper was doing what a goalkeeper should do. Yeah, that's, um, that's what Adam said last week. Yeah, agreed. And it's been it's been so long. I mean, it's been basically the best part of eighteen months since since we've had a keeper that you have any sort of confidence in. Um, so yeah, I mean, McCarthy comes out with credit, um, and I see already he's been linked with Liverpool, which is <laughs> absolute textbook. Yeah, um, but. Yeah, other than that, I, I did, did quite well, I thought, in in his sort of short period in the side, given that he'd basically been completely forgotten about and written off after um, after one game where he was given the run around by Wolves yeah, yeah. Uh, back in um, September. Um, other than that, not really. I, yeah. I've, I sensed a sort of a big disconnect, I think, between... Um, between the players and the overall fan base. I mean, obviously there was it all came together in the last sort of four or five games where everyone was sort of best mates again and and all this sort of stuff. But now, I mean, for for me there was a there were a lot of players that were visibly going through the motions for best part of nine months this season. Mm-hmm. Um, so when so if if we do have some sort of clear out in the summer, I don't think there'll be an awful lot of tears shed. No, agree. Yeah, and and Simon, looking back at the the managerial change that finally happened uh, after uh, the Newcastle embarrassment, there, what what do you think Mark Hughes brought to Saints that maybe Maurizio Pellegrino had lacked? Interesting question. Interesting in the sense of it's hard to pin down. Adam would probably be a better place to pin down, for, but for me, it felt like we Southampton needed an old school manager just to bash some heads together. Yeah. Um, Whereas at Stoke, they had an old-school manager in Mark Hughes. An old-school in the sense of British, came through the ranks here, has by and large spent his entire career within the British game. Um, so when Paul Lambert came in, it wasn't a change of tack or voice, you wouldn't have thought. Not much, anyway. Um, whereas at Southampton, we've had Puel, Pochettino, Koeman, Pellegrino. So going away from the foreign management route probably shocked a few people. Uh, and people that needed a kick up the backside got it, um, or just didn't get involved. I think he was just, it brought a bit of organisation, he brought a bit of drive. I, as you said, eight points in eight games isn't a particularly great haul. Mm, mm. Um, I'm not, I, I would have thought there should have been an interview process rather than just giving the job straight off the bat, but you know, what do I know? <laughs> Yeah, and, and from your point of view, Adam, I know you're on holiday at the moment, um, but I think the, the general view is that at time of recording, this is what, 20th of May, that Hughes will probably be appointed at some point this week. And uh, as Simon says there, no no real interview process. I think Ralph in the interview with you that we'll talk about later spoke about a probationary period, I think, didn't he? We called it a, a, a trial period, trial period um, yeah. and uh, and said kind of they got to know everything they can. And, and as I said, I think my overriding feeling about it was um just that uh, i was hoping that that saints haven't done this because they feel they have to mm. but actually because they want to but, um and, and hopefully that is why you never you can never know because we will never know 
the exact rationale and reasoning, but obviously they're under massive pressure to appoint Hughes after a fairly chastening uh, season, and therefore, you know, you just giving him the job is is obviously the very um, easy answer. But and he may well do a very good job, but he's only going to do a very good job if everybody's in unison and, and singing from the same hymn sheet, as it were. Otherwise, it's doomed to fail. And I remembered back actually to. Um, when I sat in the office with Rupert Lowe after he came back to the club with Michael Wilde, if you remember their, do, the, the yeah. Rupert comeback when they came back together. Let's and, uh, well, that was, <laughs> let's go watch. And Nigel Pearson. I've still got the T-shirt. <laughs> <laughs> Nigel Pearson had been the manager that had kept them up in the championship, if you recall, on yep. a short-term contract. And um, there was huge pressure for Nigel Pearson to stay as manager. And Rupert... Uh, got rid of him. Obviously, the the appointments that he made in Jan Portley, uh well, in Jan Portley, the appointment that he made didn't uh, certainly didn't work out. Albeit, you know, without retrain history, obviously they're an incredibly young team who who weren't really good enough. So it's a very difficult job for anybody. But nonetheless, I actually um, for all the criticism that I throw at Rupert Lowe during his era, I actually felt that that was uh, a good decision in terms of not retaining Nigel Pearson because. He clearly didn't fancy Nigel Pearson at all. And therefore, if he would have simply bowed to public pressure to have appointed him, um, then that uh, would have ended in tears because those sort of things always do. So all I hope is that um, Saints have taken this decision for the right reason and that they really believe that Mark Hughes is a good bet and a long term bet for the football club. Because if they don't believe that, then then this one won't work out either. So I hope that they've made the decision um, for all the right reasons. My my fear, just to just to jump in, is that Southampton, as I'm saying, they have to make this for the right reasons because otherwise there's a very real possibility that they become one of many sides that keep it, bring a manager in, they save him from the drop, they keep him in, then results go sour, they sack him in November, and then you just go back on this merry-go-round, and it it takes a special manager or a special group of players to break out of that again. We saw that with Sunderland, yeah, four years in a row. They just, Gus Poyet came in, did well, kept him up, got a new contract, fired, De Canio comes in, boom, boom, boom. And it's it's, it's hard to get out of that. Mm-hmm. And Steve, I mean, I, I think Simon Adam made, both make really good points. I mean, Hughes wasn't someone that particularly inspired me when uh, he came in, but I think we were all just desperate in the nicest way to, to get rid of Pellegrino. But do, do you feel, I mean, as Simon says, eight points out of 24 isn't fantastic, but it was enough to keep us up. I mean, do, do you feel he deserves the job? Do you, do you think he's done enough to warrant it? Or do you think Saints should be looking further afield, maybe at someone that can help drive them forward the next two, three, four years? Well, I mean, it's an absolute indictment on the rest of the league that only eight points in that period was enough to keep us up. Mm. Looking at it sort of as objectively as you possibly can as a supporter, I think Hughes did an acceptable job in in this period. He's um, he was he was brought in to keep us up, and he's done exactly that. I mean, the style of play we've we've been okay. There have been some games where we, where we played pretty well. I thought Chelsea, we were excellent for 65, 70 minutes. Um, Arsenal, we were pretty good for long spells of that game as well um, and City on the final day we were decent mm. but there were also games where we were an absolute shambles yeah. um, whether that's down to him or whether that's down to players not putting a shift in in certain games and in certain roles or, or whatever ultimately it all comes down to the, the manager is where everything stops and I think as 
Adam and Simon have said, I think if if the club believe that Hughes is the guy that's going to take us on, fine. Um, there's nothing. I've not seen anything from the side that that sort of under him that has specifically worried me. Yeah. Um, and if you look at if you look back at Hughes's overall record at um, all the jobs he's had have generally been reasonably long term. I think the the only one where he's really where he really screwed up was QPR. Mm. Well, he, did, um, he also left Fulham quite quickly as well. Yeah, but he did a good job at Fulham. He did, but, they, um, but I think that ties into what you say about QPR. I think he's at a different stage of his career now because I covered QPR and Fulham in that period, mm. uh, which probably added to my lack of enthusiasm when he was appointed. Mm. Um, but I think he, as well as going British, having gone for foreign managers for the last few years, it is a manager that probably sees Saints now as his peak. Mm. which probably isn't a bad thing for everyone else who've been a stepping stone. Yeah, I, I don't I don't mind us being seen as a stepping stone because it means that a manager is, that the manager we've got is always looking to improve, which mm. means that if a manager we've got in situ is going to get poached by a big by a bigger club or a sideways club as Everton are and were, then um he's going to have to do a good job with us. Um so I'm I'm not necessarily on the same page in terms of a manager is sort of perceived as at his peak being with us is a good thing. I think that that potentially brings in a sort of level of potential complacency. Um, but my, I guess the only slight reservation I have with Hughes is possibly whether he's prepared to fit into the club structure that, that we've sort of defined over a significant period of time now that has proven to work other than, this season, where basically they just made the wrong appointment. If he is, if he's not going to want to get too involved in transfers, I mean, fine, he's he's going to identify which areas of the team uh, need particular strengthening. I mean, let's face it, we all we all could list the three or four positions that we know are absolutely vital that we get new players in. But as long as he's not um, getting the, getting Kia Jarabchin involved and, and forcing us to go down through certain agents and, and all, all this sort of stuff that's been thrown at him in previous jobs in the past, then yeah, I, I don't, I've, I've got no particular issue with us um, giving him giving him a long term contract. I mean, we could do we could do with a bit of stability for once, could we? Yeah, no, I think that's my view. I, I was doing a podcast with uh, the other Two Saints Podders last week, and I was talking about the fact we've had so many players and managerial churn that it would be good to have an element of stability. And as you say, um, you know, the players did go through the motions a bit for nine months, but there's no doubt he got to a certain extent the best out of them for a, a few weeks there, Adam, and did enough to get them over the line. And for that reason, I think that's probably why Saints fans have got the feel-good factor around him a bit. Yeah, which is understandable after you know two managers that they haven't liked than to have somebody who's delivered something. You know, we can argue the toss as to how, how great eight, eight points from eight games is, but ultimately they look like they were doomed and he's salvaged the situation and therefore um, that obviously puts him at the front of the queue and, and it's understandable why a lot of Southampton fans would want to see him given a go. And I think the other thing that they like about him um, is, as is Peachy kind of... Uh, pointed out he is very different in fact I would I think the most similar manager they've had in recent times is Kuman. now I appreciate that Kuman obviously is foreign but actually uh, sort of a, a legendary player with that kind of aura and uh, a bit of a reputation 
uh, a bit of a, a guy who doesn't take any nonsense. And also, I think that the fans think a guy that is going to, you know, really, they hope, I think, grab control of, of the football situation at the club in total. Now, I don't actually think that is necessarily the case, as Steve is saying, because rightly, because of the structure that Saints have. But I think that some fans have this perception. I think also that, that you know, Hughes obviously is a, can be a firebrand. Um, but I don't think he has, contrary to popular belief, come in and, you know, absolutely torn into the players and, and things like that. I don't think that he's, he's, he's been a, a very different manager to, I think, what a lot of the outside perception of what he's done is. But I think that actually that outside perception is something that, that um, fans want because it's the antithesis of a lot of the things that they have despised about the football side of the club in the last couple of years. Um, look, I don't, I don't want us to get all negative. Obviously, I mean, you know, Saints have stayed in the Premier League, which is the most important thing. But there's been a lot of chat, I, I guess, and you, you spoke about an inquest, Adam, and blame and accountability. And obviously, we will come on to talk about Kruger's interviews. But um, just, just sort of thinking about the, the blame slash accountability side of things. So, um, at Dave Robinson UK asked a question, Adam, if you could start maybe with the answer on this. Um, were the failings of the season down to the poor management of the first third of the season or the squad? And then just following on with Mark Hughes and going back to Simon's earlier point, he says, do you think that Mark Hughes could push the team on with a couple of signings or is a complete overhaul now needed? In my view, um, t- tackling the two bits, uh, I'll do the, the last part first. Yeah. I, I, I do believe an overhaul is needed. I've, um, yeah, I've said on the pod before, I don't necessarily buy into this um, theory that Saints are infinitely better than their league position suggests. I think they are better, but I mean, the people going, you know, this squad, they should never be down. They should never be down there. And then you actually analyse it and you say, well, okay, let's go through player by player. Um, and let's say, which club um, down in the, in the, you know, the outside of the top six have got centre-halves, the equivalent of Wesley Hood and Jack Stevens, Sashmar Yoshida. Pretty much all of them, which have got a goalkeeper, the equivalent of Alex McCarthy, pretty much all of them. Uh, and we go on and on and on and on, and on, as we've talked about before, and particularly in the attacking areas where you know, there are some arguments that they're actually weaker than a lot of clubs around them. So therefore, I think there, there is a, an overhaul required. Um, I also think that to get out some of the, the dead wood that they've accumulated through, um, th- let's be honest, um, having had a really good hit rate, on transfers they've had a bit of a tough time of late and they it's very hard to move these people on but i think that they've got to try and get rid of some and freshen it up and if that happens then hughes has got a real chance if it's tinkering at the edges you know a couple of players go and, and a couple more come in i'm not saying that they're, they're not going to do better i think they will do better under him than than 17th but i don't foresee a, a colossal change in fortunes if they don't giving better tools to work with. And leading into the, the first part of the question from there, mm. I think that is part of the problem that Maurizio Pellegrino had. Clearly, it was an appointment that um, didn't work out. We can all see that now, and uh, that's pretty obvious. But I also think um, that, as I said so many times, he's not had the squad that was required. I just I just don't buy that. I, I can buy that maybe people think that they shouldn't be a relegation club and they should have been a bit better but I can't buy that this is a team that you know that by right should be seventh or eighth because I just think when you look at the squad you look at the balance of players they've got I just don't think that's the reality of, of what they've signed and what they've accumulated there so I really think that they need 
uh, an, an overhaul, no matter who the manager is. And I think that though Pellegrino uh, didn't didn't do that well, I think that he was he started with one hand tied behind his back, and he never worked out how to get it how to get back to having two hands to actually have a fight. Steve, I guess Adam and I have spoken a number of times about the lack of leaders on the pitch, particularly since uh, the cloud and in inverted commas left. Um, I mean, where, where do you, accountability, the word blame and in inverted commas, but where, where do you put it? I mean, do you put it at the, the, the football operations department and, and Les Reed, or do you think there's more to it than just player recruitment? Um, I think that's a significant part of it. I mean, the thing is, you, you look back through all the players that we've signed over the last five or six years, while not every transfer works out, you look at that individual player and their characteristics and what they bring to the side and and you look at them and you think okay yeah that that kind of makes that kind of makes a bit of sense and the only one we probably completely write off is um, Guido Carrillo who is basically going to be the next Osvaldo in terms of what he costs us to just to bid him off mm. but I think what what we've done is we've we've we seem to have gone away from looking at the collective and then. And we're now looking, focusing on what an individual brings to us, as opposed to, okay, the squad, the squad needs this sort of attribute within the within the whole setup. So as you say, we don't have enough leaders anymore. Um, I mean, as good a, a sort of leader by example, I suppose, um, Stephen Davis um, is when fit, which he hasn't been all season, obviously, as Ryan Bertram can be when he's when he's on his game. I mean, the, the centre-backs, when I mean, you're playing with Mario Yoshida, who was fourth choice 18 months ago, and Jack Stevens and Wesley Hoot, who just wouldn't get in, I mean, they wouldn't, wouldn't get in most sides, most sides in the Premier League, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have said, mm-hmm. uh, based on their performances. Um, so we need, we need somebody of the Font Van Dijk kind of mould. I mean, obviously we're not going to be able to sign someone of the quality of Van Dijk straight off the bat, you need to look for someone who's got specific attributes. So the organisational side of things is, is for me, the single most important thing. Because yeah. watching all the way through the season, um, every single game that we've played where we've looked shaky at the back, there's not been a single person shouting and pointing fingers and telling someone where they should be. Mm. It's, all been a, it's all been a little bit too meek. Nobody's, nobody's been willing to kind of take responsibility and say, right, I'm going to, I'm going to sort this, sort this shambles out. Yeah. Um, so for me, the leadership, leadership aspect is, is going to be vital over the summer. We need probably two players, I think, who are, who have got a bit of experience. Now, the problem with that is that goes completely against how we sign players. We always sign young players who have got potential to develop into, into much better players who we then sell on and, and obviously rinse and repeat. But we need to we need to refine that a little bit because evidently just signing young players who have got no real world experience and no leadership um, because they've not been in in these sort of situations before it's well we basically shot ourselves in the foot with that because you need you need someone to organise things on the pitch the manager can only do and do so much once you cross that white line it's down down to the players probably sign some older players I mean. Yep. Why we why we ended up binning Martin Caseras off last summer when he was already on the books and there's seventy odd caps for Uruguay, mm. and then we bring in a guy who Caseras is place he's now taken. And they, well, they basically they've effectively swapped places at Lazio. There, and Caseras is 
um, got Lazio back into Europe this season. Just, just before we come on to, I've got a question for you as well, Simon. Actually, but um, oh, Steve... I didn't know. I didn't know I was still on the call. <laughs> um, Steve uh, mentioned Guido Carrillo there I saw a fantastic um, actually it was on Twitter this morning Some uh, it looks to be a Spanish based uh, Saints it's called uh, At Magazine Sutton but it's called Southampton Magazine and uh, it had a tweet saying uh, Adam you probably know this better than I is it Carlos Campagnucci is that one of Pri- um, yes m- yeah right okay. yes, so, Mauricio Pellegrino yeah that's uh, right so, yeah. Yeah, so Carlos Campagnucci confessed that Southampton was interested in Andre Carrillo um, it said um uh, we were interested in taking him to Southampton. We had been offered him and were looking for a footballer of the game of his characteristics. Uh, and then it, and then the final bit said, um, uh, it said we looked at him very much, but it was not close. Personally, it is a player that I like very much. So bearing in mind his name was Andre Carrillo, I wasn't sure if we'd accidentally signed the wrong Carrillo, um, but uh, there think, we go. So I, don't, I don't know whether it was that, but it does seem like they might have signed the wrong Carrillo. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. I think, I think um, you've got more chance getting a game than he has next season, but there I we go. But, the uh, um, interesting thing is, I think that behind the scenes they're still um saying to still trying to talk up the possibility that um Carrillo could have an impact and I, I think that there's been an admission uh, privately at least from, from what I've been told that actually you know this guy is in their view is going to be a good signing um, mm. in their view but um but actually it was not a good January signing because January signings have to be impact signings especially when you're struggling is whereas this guy was always somebody who was whether he you know succeeds or fails in the long run was always somebody who was probably going to take quite a lot of time to have to adapt to life yeah. in England not speaking the language etc 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 so to bring him in in January as a club record signing when you're desperate for a new figurehead to save your season uh, was never likely to be something that flourishes but um, it'll be interesting to see really what Hughes makes of that as and when he obviously gets the job permanently and he starts looking in, in pre-season and whether he agrees with that assessment or um, as we've seen in recent times he doesn't get anywhere near the team mm. I'm never going to complain about the four million we spent on Rory Delap again anyway put it that way but uh, look, we, we better go to Simon because I don't want him to hang up on us so um, look Simon um, there was a question that came in for uh, for the pod from at uh, Simon Paul 1975 and Adam always talks about Les Reed being able to, to spend all day taking the bins out um, just related to the, uh, the the transfers there it says my question will always be the club changed their mentality of their transfer dealings this relates to taking way too long to bring in new players in the transfer window for me this does not help build momentum and or team spirit um, do, I mean, do, you, do you often find from the information you pick up Simon and as a fan as well I think we all get frustrated I mean the Mark Hughes situation has probably been um, a good picture of that I mean how long does it take to sign a manager that wants to stay at the club do, do you find that Saints seem to drag things out more than other clubs do or do you think it's just modern football there's there's so many T's and C's these days well T's and C's and in Mark Hughes's case lawyers because that's all that's mm. holding up this deal that's already agreed but it was done late last week and it's just I was it was described to me as lawyers earning their money so yeah. I, I I think that is why that's been protracted but I understand what it means about players I mean Guido Carrillo I think it's a really good point that he's not a January impact sign if, you, if you're making a January sign and you want an impact you want someone like Vegard Foran uh, someone like that to really just hit the ground running yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I, I haven't written him off completely I have written off Foran I'm talking about Carrillo um <laughs> I just looked at it. Foreign has played for two English clubs and not made a single first team yeah, appearance. And, and he's back yeah. on mould. Brilliant. Yeah. What a man. Yeah. What a man. <laughs> a man with a higher body fat percentage than most of the press box. Um, <laughs> uh, they, it does feel that there, that summer when Koeman first came in, 
they did see plans afoot to just go bang, 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 we're making these signings. Uh, when Sadio Mane went bang, Nathan Redmond, I, st- I, st- I still, well, one, it's a bugbear of mine that he got booed. So, well, mm. picked out so much on Boxing Day at Tottenham and that obviously impacted his form. Uh, so hopefully he can come again and be half the player Sadio Mane would, was. I think there's just been a sense, it's a phrase that somebody who may or may not be on this podcast today said to me a few years ago, uh, and it stuck with me, and it's sense of drift. There was a sense of drift at Southampton a while ago. Um, <laughs> I think I know who you're talking about. And um, it, when he when he said that, I kind of laughed, and then he, I've kind of given it away. He it can't be Steve. Um, <laughs> um, so where now? <laughs> you, you can tell us all now. It's a, we're an open-minded society, Steve. Um, yeah, it, it, it just kind of, it just everything at the club just seemed to be like, oh, it, it felt like everybody was saying, I'll sort it out next week, or so-and-so will sort it out. And that has gone for transfers for basically every part of the club, as far as I can tell. Oh, we're dealing with the takeover, we'll let someone else do that. But, and that leadership's filtered all the way through. Uh, so, yeah, it does feel like transfers have kind of taken a back seat. I mean, Mario Lamina, on paper, was a really, really, really good purchase. Mm. Um, I know everybody who didn't have a Saints focus were going, ha, 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 look, they've sold Mario Lamina and got Blaise Matuidi for the same price. But what they're not appreciating is Saints can't sign Blaise Matuidi. Uh, and he's a 31-year-old, 32-year-old, and you're getting someone at an age where they should be approaching their peak, if not at it. Um, so people like that were good signings. And Saints did seem to corner the market of that kind of 12 to 15 million pound bracket player whereas now they don't and they've gone to 20 million to get career and he's not done anything yet Quincy Promes I know Saints were keen to go back on him when they when they failed to get him in January but he's going to cost 30 you'd think mm. um, and they do need to act I think as I said I'm ex- whether this podcast is out before or after Hughes' appointment it's a matter of when rather than if as far as I'm aware mm. they need to get going on transfers this summer they do need to make out. Ralph said it was a big summer in his interviews with half the national press. And he, yeah, it is a big summer, so they can't afford that sense of drift to, to carry on now. Right, just before we go on to talk about um, the Kruger interview then, I thought we should try and end this section with one positive. So Steve, um, we'll go Steve, Adam, Simon, so you can start to think of your answers. But if you could pick one highlight from this season, Steve, what would it be? Oh, God. Um, no. Don't worry. <laughs> by the time by the time I've edited it, this will be seamless, and it will sound like you've thought of it straight away. I guess it's got to be the just the sense of relief at full time at Swansea. I can't, yeah, you know, genuinely, genuinely can't think back through the season where any game has you know, maybe maybe Everton at home where we mm-hmm. where we were good, but then you kind of look back at it and think, well, actually, that was a we were playing against a team that were in ab- even more of a shambles than we were at the time. But the Swan the Swansea game. It was it was weird that we went one nil up and there was never never even a slight never even a slight fear in my mind that we were not going to not win that game yeah. um, because you just you just saw of the body language of Swansea the way that, the way that they'd made their changes just before we scored and just threw their shape out completely they were just a mess and it was mm. no we've we've got this now um, so I guess that that would be the that would be the one positive that. Through all the all the absolute toilet that we had to put up with throughout the season. Yeah, good. Adam, what about you? Was there anything you can uh, claim for a highlight of the season? Well, I really enjoyed the ice cream at Arsenal this year. That was good. Yeah. 
Um, <laughs> that comes but, from Twyford, by the way. It's uh, it was Matt. Does it? Yeah, it comes from Twyford. I, I think it was from pop. Kent. Well, it says Twyford on it, so unless they've changed oh, it, I, I, I thought it was about Kent. North it was, now. It was sensational. It was sensational. Yeah. That was good. Um, oh, I'm a bit stuck beyond that. Um, yeah, nothing, nothing on the pitch. Oh, on the pitch. Uh, <laughs> uh, Newcastle away, Burnley away. I mean, you speak of the fondness of yours and Peachy's visit to Burnley, I remember. Oh, yeah, we had a good day there, didn't we? That was the worst Premier League match I've ever seen. <laughs> and pretty, I watched Jose Mourinho's Man United for a living. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, I, right, well, I'm struggling then. a little bit. Yeah. I mean, I guess... A moment that uh, sticks in my mind away from the pitch is, um, which kind of, in a way, uh, summed up Maurizio Pellegrino, because obviously you've got to take into account that this is mainly his season, was uh, Christmas um, in the press room. Oh, yeah, um, red wine and... Red wine and um, yeah, cars. absolutely. Yeah. And Maurizio um, kind of tried to do his best to give everybody a glass of wine and, and kind of have a chat, but... It was um, he's a he was a lovely guy, but it was just so awkward and so odd um, a moment. And uh, he was trying, really trying, and he was being really nice, but it just couldn't quite click. And you, there was a bit of me in there that just wondered, I wonder if this is what he's probably like with the players as well, and this is how they see him. And this nice guy who's obviously trying, but it doesn't quite click, and that. That moment kind of uh, was a bit of a takeaway for me in terms of a little insight into perhaps uh, what was going on going on there with him. Um, so that's an obvious thing that, that just stuck out in my mind yeah. from the season, away from uh, all the nonsense on the pitch. Fine. Well, we're not we're not really called that a highlight then, but we'll, we'll take the ice cream at Arsenal. That's fair enough. Um, what about, <laughs> what, what about I'm you? I'm giving you what? insight. I'm giving you gold. Well, no, that was that was yeah, that was fantastic. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, what about you, Sam? I mean, as I say, I know you saw a fair bit of Saints. So, was there anything that uh, particularly caught your eye? Or are you in the same boat as Adam, food related? Well, I, I like the way that Adam is moaning about hospitality. I, Man United don't even know that word for the most part. Jose Mourinho, no. Yeah, look, it's it, at least it gives us good copy. Uh, but I digress. Um, highlight of the season, apart from the relief of finding a bar to watch the second half of the Man City game, mm-hmm. because the stag do that I was on in Ibiza, the stag desperately wanted to watch the match, and everywhere for some reason was showing Chelsea Newcastle. I mean, that was a highlight to get to get a beer in. Just well, I've got another one. Okay, well, it's, it's, you can do top trumps in a minute. I'm not exactly setting a high bar. <laughs> There aren't really the highlights of the season. There there aren't any. It's not even like there's been young players that have really come on leaps and bounds. It's 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 just been pockets of promise, if that. Very small pockets as well. I just I just hope that that somebody at the club thinks like this as well. If someone says Mm. then what's the highlight of the season, and they don't really have one apart from staying up. I mean, yeah. that shows you that a lot of work needs to be done. Yeah, I, I was very much of uh, I saw Steve's uh, view on uh, Facebook, which was uh, let's never talk of this season again. I think I'm very much with you on that, Steve. But uh, um, go on then, Adam. Did you say you had a third highlight as well? Did yeah, you? Yeah, I yeah, think sorry. I do. It's yeah. the massive favour that um, that Southampton's friends down the road in Bournemouth did at the end of the season because. They pretty much, despite the fact that they apparently hate Saints, pretty much kept them in the Premier League by producing an absolutely <laughs> appalling performance to basically hand Saints three points at St Mary's 
and then turning up and doing quite the opposite by all accounts and beating Swansea the week later. And had they not done that, Saints would be in the championship now. So they obviously love them really. Yeah. So so your three highlights, just to clarify, the uh, ice cream at Arsenal. Um, well, that, that's form- really the highlight. I've yeah. just given you two other like, things just to our, fill up this bit of time. Our, our former manager handing out alcohol and our rivals down the road saving us from relegation. That's your three highlights, just to clarify. Well, I tend to agree with you. I was, I, to be honest, I'm clutching at straws just to, just to <laughs> try and answer your question <laughs> because it's been rubbish, isn't it? And it's former fans that, that they kept us up because we'll never hear the end. Never of hear it. the end of it, yeah. No. <laughs> like Pompey fans thinking they sent us down when, no, we did that ourselves, thanks. <laughs> Now, before we go on and talk about Ralph Krieger's end-of-season interview, earlier this week, Saints announced on Thursday that they would be freezing season ticket prices for the 2018-19 season, um, a gesture which most of the time would probably be applauded, but in uh, light of the loosely uh, worded entertainment at St Mary's over the last couple of years, might well be questioned. Um, Steve, you're the only current season ticket holder out of the four of us on the pod today. Um, what's your, your view on that in terms of Saints um, freezing the prices? Fair enough, or do you think a little bit cheeky? Well, I mean, it's fair enough because they'll probably sell enough to justify it. Um, and ultimately, they're looking at the bottom line and that will be the end of it. But for me, I think given that the TV money contributes such a high percentage now to um, to the club's revenue and the ticket revenue is kind of almost, almost kind of an irrelevance. I mean, obviously, for a club of our size, it's not. But for... for a lot of the bigger clubs, you look at the the, t- the ticket money they, they generate, it's barely 10% of their revenue. And I, yeah. I guess for us, it's probably not. I think not it was 12%. I think it was, that's what Adam said when he did his end of year accounts, Adam. That's right, isn't it? 12% of the revenue, I think. Yeah. That's the whole match day income as yeah, well. Exactly, not just tickets, yeah. though. Tickets yeah. obviously account for the majority. It's, a, the, it's such a tiny percentage. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, what, what, would, what would the club be losing by cutting 50 quid off a season ticket. So mm. they've got 20,000 season ticket holders, give or take. Cut 50 quid a ticket. Um, so that costs you, what, um, half a million quid in um, in season ticket revenue. But what you gain in goodwill from the fans, people, people basically saying, yes, I'm definitely going to renew now because they've saved me 50 I've, they've cut cut it 50 quid they there's been a there's been a recognition that what's been served up on the pitch as quote unquote entertainment um hasn't been value for money mm. um and the club is giving something back to the fan they would lose out financially to a to a small extent but they may make that back in terms of obviously the goodwill and people will say well okay they've they've saved me money on that so therefore right I'm going to go and buy a new shirt with the um, with the yeah. money I've saved, and there, there just seems just seems to be a very sh- very narrow-minded and short-sighted view um, from those from whoever it is that that makes the final call on those prices. I mean, five hundred and seventy quid is a hell of a lot of money. Yeah, there's obviously no there's no discount now if you're an existing season ticket holder, so you're going to get basically loads of season ticket holders are just going to wait until probably the end of July, beginning of August now. So the club's got no no ability to to plan for um, to plan any sort of budgeting uh, mm. with that money, I think we're what seventh or eighth highest season tickets in the league. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if you're if you're paying if you're paying that sort of money, then I don't think it's unreasonable for fans to expect us to be competing for that sort of position in the league. I know I know that's not the way it works, but in people's minds, that will be that will be the justification. 
Mm. And so, Simon, I think it was, as Steve mentioned there, 10% retail discount, 20% off food and drink, but only uh, up until 30 minutes before kickoff, because that's obviously when everyone tends to rock up. And I think it was 30% off a, a room hire at the stadium as well. I mean, uh, again, you know, probably clutching at straws, and I'm sure Saints fans were renowned for moaning about everything. But all of those discounts rely on fans to spend even more money alongside their season ticket. Given what a nominal figure it is, it's almost as if they set these prices thinking that they were going to go to the championship um, and they just went, oh, I'll just keep this model. Because in the championship, that will be the income. That That's it, basically, apart from the parachute payment. And you've got extraordinary wages you've got to pay for a championship club. Um, I know that the club are work. People I speak to are really, really keen to connect with fans again. And they need to because mm. the last two years is just we we spoke about it earlier with the players, but it's every part of this. I don't think it's just the playing stuff. I just think fans as a whole are feeling quite disconnected, and there's no, there is a reason to, but there's also a reason not to be disconnected. A lot of people that work for that club are Southampton fans uh, that want the best for the club, just because the people that are front and centre that annoy you aren't Southampton fans or whatever, it doesn't mean that there's not a lot of great people at that club that are doing really good jobs within their sections. And I just feel that there needs to be more understanding of what the fans want. I know they're talking, Ralph told me that he's, I'm sure, I know they put things out about the fans for him, but they want to build a fan zone at the stadium. They want to do this, they want to do that. Um, but they do need to. It's good that they're recognising it because while it might be for, and for Adam and I, it's difficult because as journalists, you don't you don't pay to go to the matches, so it doesn't. When I go to away games, I pay obviously, mm-hmm. but I don't pay to go to St Mary's because I'm working there most of the time. So it, that's difficult. But what I can see is the disconnect, and that's quite frustrating because a couple of years ago, if there, I couldn't remember a club that just felt so together. Earlier this week, Ralph Kruger, Saints chairman, gave an end-of-season interview reflecting on the season as a whole and what next for Saints. Both Adam and Simon had the chance to speak with him and listen to his uh, often customary ramblings. Um, Adam, before we um, get into the nitty-gritty of what was uh, spoken about, um, when when you meet Ralph Kruger, I I know as a fan I think many of us find it frustrating trying to to understand some of his answers. When you're sat in front of him, how frustrating or easier job is it for you as a journalist to, to sort of look into his eyes and try and work out a if he's understood your question and b if he's uh, given the, the right sort of answers you'd expect it's not an easy interview i don't think um not that ralph is a, a difficult person at all he's a very nice amiable chap um as i think most people probably uh realize and obviously i've got to know him a little bit i don't know him well but i you know i've interviewed him quite a lot and uh, I found that I need to take a different approach to how I would normally interview people. I, I love um, political interviewing. I'm a, I, I like watching a lot of polit- political interviewing, and I'm a big fan of people like Andrew Neil. And actually, I, I just kind of felt, especially this time speaking to Ralph, I kind of needed to attempt to do my own, uh, you know, much less impressive version of that kind of interviewing if he wasn't going to be offering up a lot of stuff so that's what i um that's what i did i tried to be a lot more um aggressive and to the point and you know and do things that i don't like doing like speaking over him interrupting him explaining things to him almost giving him uh, leading questions and things like that just because 
I just felt that it was the on some not on all topics, but on some topics, you really have to try and uh, make him really aware of of what you're getting at and, and what you're trying to say. And I, I don't know whether it came across in the interview or not, but I mean there were a few more tense moments because I I really um, tried to push him and push him very hard, and and he was trying to withstand it. I mean, there's only so far you can go, obviously, and you respect um, the boundaries that I think. Uh, Ralph respected the interview and the interview style and we had a chat which I, I won't disclose obviously the details of our off the record conversations but we had a chat about it afterwards as well and especially in this situation given everything that's going I couldn't just go in and kind of give him a, a free hit I felt like um, when I was interviewing him given uh, obviously that the the echo is going to carry the the interviews and the stuff with him in the greatest depth um, the we really have to uh, make the most of it. We don't get to, we haven't spoken to Les Reed for what, a year and a half. Um, we, Ralph speaks more often, but it's, you know, still hadn't done his inter- an interview since January. And obviously a lot happened and you can't just allow these opportunities to pass by. And, and I've uh, said before that I wonder when I look with hindsight, whether we have done enough uh, collectively as the media to, to perhaps, hold Saints to account this season a little bit and we perhaps we should have done more and I certainly think that if that's the case that when you get the chance to ask difficult questions that you don't shy away from it for, for a sense of fear or anything like that so that's the way I try to approach the interview and obviously there is a slight there's in my mind there's a few main topics I don't I go in with the main topics but I'm not one to write down questions or do a lot of preparation because I prefer to try and sit and listen to the answers and then go on from there. But obviously it's something that we've talked an awful lot about and that, that I'm, uh, I really think is a, it personally is a huge issue for the club still is the question over ownership. And I think that that's a lot of the reason for the disconnect, which I thought Peachy spoke excellently on and which I completely agree on. Um, and, and I think that it comes from the very top and that was something that I was really, really keen to press him on. And though I think a lot of the fans, the headlines were, the Hughes stuff, the Reed stuff, the stuff about transfers. Actually, I still think that the the real crux of it all comes down to what is the direction of the club? Why is Gal bought it? What are they doing? Uh, we've talked about more of the details that did come out, but that was what I was really keen to really press him on because I didn't... What is hard to work out is whether he is definitely giving you... Whether he genuinely doesn't understand that this is a massive issue... Yeah. Um, or doesn't agree that this is a massive issue or whether he is simply just trying to put up as many barriers as he can because mm. he thinks that the, the least that they say about Gao, the better, because it, it doesn't get him or anybody else in trouble with Gao, who's the guy who's in charge, who's got the money and, and all that kind of stuff. So mm. that's why I was really keen to press him particularly on that. Yeah, and and look um, at Jason Dickey, thirty-three. Just um, just to sort of f- um, finish this bit up, Adam said, could Adam offer his opinion on how much Kruger seemed to hum and haw about his answers versus legitimately trying to give honest responses? They weren't easy questions. So I think, as you said there, obviously you did get a chance to press him. But when you again, when you listen to him, we only see the edited version in the paper, the same as we do with Simon, the same as we do with Adam Blackmore's interviews. But is you know, is there a lot of humming and hawing and trying to sort of come up with an answer that he thinks you want to hear, or do you, do you think? he genuinely sort of tends to speak straight from the the heart most times 
No, there's not there's not a lot of pauses in it. I mean, the, the conversation, the transcript um, that was published over two days was the very vast majority of the interview. Um, there's not a lot edited. There's a few bits where, um, a, a couple of bits on the first one where I took out one uh, particular question just because it wasn't very interesting and I had to save some words. And uh, there was a couple where he went off on a couple of tangents repeating himself from previous answers that I edited down. Um, and the second one uh, went in more or less with the gal stuff, more or less in its entirety. And, and Ralph doesn't, he answers very quickly and starts. But the problem is, once he's had a go and he's had his sort of chance to say what he wants, I, I just think that from, from an interviewer's point of view, you can't let him just keep going back over the same old ground. And you've got mm. to try and uh, press him and, and try and ask him. And, and that's why... You know, as much as I don't like doing it, sometimes I, I found myself interrupting him, you know, kind of not raising my voice, but being a bit more, trying to be a bit more authoritative, a little bit more, I wouldn't use the word aggressive because that's the wrong word, but, you know, a bit more um, coming on a bit stronger um, just to try and make the point that you're not you're not answering what I'm asking you here. This is what I'm asking you, and I'll be very clear about what I'm asking you, and then it's up to you to, to answer. And ultimately, I think we got some interesting extra tidbits out of it but you know ralph um is very good at uh, um at playing the media game really he's a he's an expert at it but i think that the one thing you can't allow in situations like that is because ralph is somebody who riffs on a lot of things and he and he talks and he says some he does say some interesting stuff in amongst uh when, when he's sort of going off on tangents as well but you you're only going to get a limited time with him so you can't allow that to be what you come out with in its entirety you've got to try and get some other stuff so it also means trying to press him on the topics that you really want answers on mm. and simon when you were on the podcast last time you mentioned that access to senior figures at manchester united who you predominantly report on as you mentioned is is particularly tough so kruger did an interview in january he's obviously done one last week do you think as saints fans we should actually be um, grateful that he does communicate with us uh, uh, you know every so often well, I was actually about to interrupt to make that point. So, Thanks. yeah, you've, you've beat me to the punch. And I also feel pretty embarrassed given how Adam's done Frost Nixon and I was hung over at Liverpool Airport sat in a Starbucks speaking to <laughs> Ralph Kruger, uh, just trying to get him off the phone. No, I'm joking. But it, um, there is a responsibility of journalists, especially when you have... Adam has a audience that he speaks on behalf of or gets the information on behalf of. I do as well, but it's not... It's not the same. I go for a national audience. He has a very his his readership are Southampton fans, and he speaks directly on their behalf. So I I have a different w way of approaching it. But when in that a lot of time, which was about two hours late because of Adam, um, he 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 did speak well. He he for me he didn't he didn't duck any questions. He he answered things as honestly as I felt he could. There was one. There's one answer, and I, I sent Steve, Steve would know this, because I sent him the transcript of the interview shortly afterwards, complete with every single typo. Um, that I thought, that, yeah, well, to be fair, I was writing on a train. He said, when he asked about a gay family, we'll be able to clarify a little bit more the expectations from their side this summer. And I just thought, that is interesting, because if he doesn't know fully the expectations, then... <laughs> Mm. How's, how's everyone else going to function but just return to what you said I think if you go through most Premier League clubs you will not find the chairman doing 
separate interviews or interviews full stop with media, whether it be local or national. Yeah. Ed Woodward hasn't gone on a record since 2014. Yeah. Um, we do meet up with him now and again, but it is just for a pint and we go home afterwards just to say we're the people that are here. Liverpool, I don't know. People, I don't think Man City do anything. Uh, well, they might do something once a year, perhaps, if you're lucky. And that's not. It's not. I think we are spoiled in that sense that we do get this access. And I think Les Reed has made a rod for his own back by speaking so openly about things in years gone by when things were seen to be perceived to be going well. Yeah, but so I think when Peachy, things though, are going. I- I, res- I respect what you say, but I think that this is part of the argument that, that Saints also make about this. And I'm not saying there's, there's about, uh, particularly with Gao, I'm not saying there's any merit to it, um, not merit to it in some respect, because Saints are in the Premier League. But again, a lot of the conversations I have, it's like, well, you don't hear Man United, Liverpool, Man City doing this, do you? And I'm like, well, no, but with all due respect, you're not Liverpool, Man City or Man United. And, mm. uh, you know, Southampton... As I said, to explain to Ralph in the interview, although I'm sure he more than understands probably better than me, are a provincial football club still. Yes, they're a big business. Yes, they're on a global stage. But the majority of their customers, the majority of their fans, live within a 50-mile radius of the stadium. They might want to, you know, you know, have great social media following from Morocco because of Sophie and Buffon, break the Asian market, break the U.S., those are all lofty and fine ambitions, but ultimately, Saints are not uh, in a club that, even though that's a good long-term aim and quite laudable in many ways, that, that that's not exactly where they are now, and that and that they need to respect that. Saying that Abramovich doesn't uh, do interviews and, and therefore um, there's no and, and doesn't explain his actions anyway, and therefore there's no need for somebody at Southampton Football Club to do that. I, I, I can understand the justification from their point of view, but I can't really agree with it because it's horses for courses and it's a completely different club. And then most of the clubs, actually, just, when just, you look outside just, of the, the big clubs, actually, they, they do do limited amounts of media. And um, I, I'm, not, I, I'm, just, I'm, I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that there's any justification for them not doing it because Man United don't do it. The point I'm making is, and I, I, there aren't many people that do it, West Ham owners do it, but I bet West Ham fans wish they'd bloody shut up. Um, <laughs> there's a fine line. Peter Coates did it a bit, but it, it, it's I, when's a, you've not heard anything from West Brom in years. You've not heard things from other clubs for years. I'm just making the point that I don't. I think it's quite good that there is that opportunity for the likes of Adam and Adam Blackmore, the people that cover it predominantly on in in the area, to go into details that a lot of other markets to get into uh, Ralph's terminology uh, don't get and there is and Adam is right about the local focus because they had lost that Ralph said as much to me that they are refocusing on what Southampton are which is predominantly a region a region to focus on and then you can grow from beyond that I think they've tried to run before they could walk and I think they've seen that now uh, whether that's sponsorship fan base because they they're, they're obviously like most clubs are obsessed with getting social media followers and stuff like that, but social media followers doesn't equate to revenue because because Southampton do funny tweets and get 40,000 retweets and a couple of thousand more followers doesn't mean that they're going to be buying shirts or tickets or whatever else. And I think they're realising that it might have taken a little longer than it should have done. And I should say that the social media output on the whole is fantastic, but it's they are trying to localise it again, and that is important to, for, well, to reconnect with fans as well. But, yeah, going... 
not every club does this. And mm. in fact, no club, Tony Fernandez did it a lot. And that's another one that I think probably spoke too much, but there's not many others that do. Mm. And, and Steve, just, just finally on Kruger himself from a sort of non-journalistic point of view, what, what do you make of him? What have you made of him? Are you, are you a fan of his or not really? I'm kind of on the fence a little bit in that, I mean, he's, he's clearly got something about him because if he hadn't, then um, Cat Lieber would have binned him off ages ago. Mm. But I can't help but sort of shake this feeling that for all, obviously, obviously the effort that went, that went into all those interviews last week and all the ones that have come before, the vast, if you put a list of questions in front of me, I could have probably come up with the answers that Kruger would have given. I don't think that he off when I mean let's face it he's he's not ever going to come out in public and say and sort of give us this sort of wild revelation. I mean as, as Simon said himself that probably the one the one revelation was probably an unintended one that um that they don't actually know what the what the gal plan is um going forward. Obviously, with no idea whether that even involved will involve Kruger himself. Gal might have his have his own ideas going forwards as the as the majority shareholder. But yeah, I, I just find that that Kruger seems not to judge the mood very well. So he's always this um, very very sort of personable and amiable bloke and happy to chat and seems to constantly have a smile on his face, mm. even when we're in the middle of a relegation battle when the shit is hitting the fan. There's my one, by the way. Um, <laughs> And, um, and there's there's no there doesn't there's no sort of tone to the way that he speaks. There's no sort of contrition for making a making a pig's ear of things. There's there's only everything is happy and glorious, and and we're gonna we're gonna sit around the campfire and 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 sing songs as a community. There's no. Do, do, do you think, as a fan, I mean, I've often wondered this that. The fact that he speaks like a North American sports coach. Do you think there's a scepticism towards him? He, he, every, everything comes with that North American bombast of mm. everything's great. He says locker room. He says locker soccer room. club. It, it just it just kind of yep. it jars a little bit. Perhaps yeah, I don't maybe. know. Yeah, yeah, possibly. We, um, I mean, we we were at the Sea City Museum, weren't we, Adam? And they, it was when he called up Matt Latiz and he called him a clutch player. He's a clutch player, and I just thought, oh god, oh god. Yeah, I know. And to be to be fair, I mean, uh, just going back on the the points made there, I think that 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 actually, I think that's probably a fair point from Peachy. And I think that 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 kind of, if you want, I don't really know, like to call it this, but it's like language barrier, maybe, um, in terms of terminology, is is difficult because. Um, but I think Ralph does does, you know, there's no arguing with the job job he does ultimately. You know, I, I think you can argue as to whether he's appointed the right people in positions. But what he's done is very much take a, a point of view that he is the representative of ownership. There, That's his job. Now, whether you think it's right or not that he should be a, if you like, hands off chairman, then but that's what he is. You can you can think that, that it might be more helpful if he was there every day rather than kind of running it from from you know afar and empowering other people to run it day to day. But that's an opinion that people might have or might not have. But whatever, he's done that, and ultimately, as a representative of ownership, you've got to turn around and say the ownership should be pleased with him because for Katarina Lieber, he's delivered an absolutely stonking profit uh, on the club. 
for Gal, he's managed to get through something that looked like it wasn't going to get through and to smooth his passage into the Premier League, which is something that he obviously wanted. And in doing so, when you look at the last set of published accounts, turning record profits. From the business side, as a representative of ownership, Ralph has done an amazing job. Now, what you turn around and say, actually, maybe the football side hasn't gone as well. Well, that's not actually his lookout. So the only thing you could criticise him for is, has he appointed the wrong people? Has he managed them correctly? Mm. Actually, rather than anything else. And I think the other stuff there, he's done, you know, you can't really fault him for. And and actually, I do, in amongst all the saying that that the, the ownership should perhaps talk more or, or the you know we should get more revelation onto what's going on i would just add that no matter whether it's been good or bad ralph has been the one person who has been prepared to front up and mm. and and take the flack yeah. <laughs> you know and turn around and go okay guys even to the people below him I, i'll be the one who takes the bullets here i'll take the hits i'll, I'll have the, the lads come in and pile into me i'll take the hits and uh but you know I, I want you guys to pick up your game as well and you've got to say um, credit to him for that, really, from um, from a management leadership perspective. Yeah. All right. Just to, to pull out two things, because as I say, I don't want uh, people to feel the podcast is going on forever. Um, Simon Ralph admitted that mistakes had been made, and he put it down to a, a mix of things. I think he called it, which was uh, not you know wasn't going to blame one person or one incident, which was slightly ironic after his uh, January interview in the uh, aforementioned cloud. But he seemed to give the impression that none of the the sort of leadership team at the moment would change, i.e., the likes of Les Reed and uh, and Ross Wilson. I, I guess my question is, Simon, around this accountability thing, which Adam pushed him. On a lot trying to get clarity on what his view of accountability was I think we are agreed there needs to be an element of stability and we don't necessarily need heads to roll but if there is accountability then should be you know should we be looking at heads rolling and trying to keep things fresh and people on their toes or you know get people away from this element of a comfort zone it's a good question and it's a difficult one because if Southampton have got relegated that's one thing but realistically they've they've avoided the worst case scenario and they've said they're going to learn from the lessons. Mm. So I just, there needs to be a proper review of what's happened. It, when I asked R- R- Ralph about that, he basically went, Oh, everyone came back in the office on Monday and we're all ready to go. We're all ready for next season. That's fine. But there does need to be a review of exactly what went wrong, in my opinion, because I think one that their stance on Virgil van Dijk was correct, as a, from my perspective, because it did show we won't be bullied. But the issue was they didn't get the dressing room right. Mm. So there's one thing having Virgil van Dijk frustrated, is another thing having a bunch of other players feeling frustrated, and not having the right leadership group, not a point manager that can choose that, uh, allowing the ownership matter to perhaps cloud decisions or not messy decisions made. I feel that everything like that needs to be looked at. I feel like the recruitment needs to be looked at because I think on the whole, well, I think Les Reed's very well respected in the football world. I know he's not particularly popular with a, uh, a section of Southampton fans at the moment, but he has done a fantastic job for this club by and large. Um, and everyone has bad periods. Um, and I'm not suggesting he's had a bad period, but there have been some bad decisions made along the way with him and Ross Wilson, whether that's on the transfer front or whatever. So, but as long as they are being recognised, then that's fine. I mean, they spent all January saying we're not going to spend money less with certain on a player and ended up with Guido Carrillo and no one else. Mm-hmm. So mistakes have been made. Maybe Guido would be fantastic, but he didn't help. What He didn't come in to do what he was bought for. 
I just feel that the club needs to go through everything. I don't think heads need to roll. I just feel that there needs to be a nod at the very least to this is what went wrong mm. and not just just papering over the cracks because if there are cracks, they'll just come out again. And, and then the other thing I just want to pick up on, Adam, after uh, Ralph's small club comment uh, back in January is this uh, comment he made <laughs> to you about the pathway. Um, so the, the, my understanding of the pathway, and I think like many Saints fans, was it was players from the academy going to through to the first team. That was the, the pathway or the Southampton way. Um, he, he seemed to talk to you about Sadio Mane and seemed to be quite pleased that Sadio Mane had made it to a, a cup final with uh, Liverpool, which was obviously great news for every Saints fan. But he, he, he very much seemed to talk now about the pathway being getting back to selling players to the top six, unless I've completely misunderstood what uh, he said. So I, I guess I was just going to ask your view on that and whether the pathway has changed overnight and none of us have really been communicated to about that. Yeah, well, I think that in fairness to Ralph, he would probably say there are two pathways. One is the academy, which they, um, which is something else I would ideally have liked to have had more time to ask him about. But obviously, I don't uh, hold up Peachy any longer than I was already doing. So... Um, <laughs> so I, I never quite got round to the academy, but that's one pathway. The other one, yeah, he did. He did say that. I mean, he obviously. I think of all the things he said in terms of admitting where errors were made, the one thing that really was pinpointed and that he brought up time and again really was this: we made the mistake. It was effectively the Van Dyke error. We we weren't ready. We were over ambitious by trying to keep our best players. When that situation arises, we were being overambitious for, for what we are as Southampton Football Club. I think the difficulty with that is that, again, you, you, in, you end up in this weird debate in that it's probably a fairly realistic and honest way of looking at things. And credit to him for coming out and just being honest about it. Um, but it's not what fans want to hear. They don't want to hear that. But obviously, we all know the flip side of that. As I've mentioned before, with the flip side of the Van Dyke thing, is it's all very well keeping him. But then, what if you're not going to get players like that? Because, you know, to, to players from abroad, to agents, Southampton is no different to Watford. It, you know, is no different to any other sort of middling Premier League club who will offer the same wages and the same opportunities. So, if there are clubs that are prepared to give you that uh, step up and that way out, if you have a good couple of years, then agents will simply move their players there. And that's something else that Saints. Uh, need to consider and it's a very difficult one because it's not the the fact that you're almost saying we can't compete with the top six is not something that fans want to hear but the truth is given the financial situation of the Premier League um, it probably is the reality of the situation and as as PG said Saints probably I think feel very chastened by what happened with Van Dyke, and I think also uh, privately, I think that they feel that they didn't. Maurizio Pellegrino was like off to a losing start before he'd even begun because he walked straight into this incredibly difficult situation that was unraveling and was unraveling his dressing room. Steve, in terms of Gal, then um, we don't seem to be any the wiser at the moment on what his intentions are. He was in the country last weekend. We all saw him at the Man City game and then at the uh, the Players Awards dinner in the evening. Um, as a, as a sort of season ticket holder, you're obviously, I'm sure, going to spend your 600 quid again next season. Do, do, you, do you find it a bit disrespectful and unsettling or, or one or t'other that he's maybe not spoken to Saints fans since he took over the club last August? Or, or do you think he needs a bit more time to understand what the club is about and what its strategy should be? From a completely sort of stand back, sort of objective perspective, it's a private, it's a private company. He's entitled to do with it what he likes. Obviously, as, as we know, football is, 
is unlike any other industry in that if I'm if I stop paying Southampton six hundred quid, I'm not going to go down to the go to a local rival and support them instead. So from that perspective, then yeah, it would be it would be nice to know what I mean, even just from a from a very sort of high level sort of ideology perspective of what he what he envisages for the club. What does he see? Does he see Saints being a driver for youth development in China, for example? Is he and the club going to be investing money back in his homeland to develop um, Chinese players who are then going to come over, get training from our coaches? Then maybe there's there's a all of a sudden there's a third Southampton Way pathway that we that we start talking about, um, or is he just looking to milk the club for for financial profit. Hmm. I mean, who who knows? Literally, no, literally nobody has any idea of this at the moment. Hmm. Um, so that's that's the only real sort of uncertainty. I mean, yeah, sure, it, it would be nice to know what what is what his aims are, but ultimately, as long as as long as the club functions on a day to day basis and there's no real red flags of underlying issues, then don't see that any club should necessarily be under the whim of, of their owner. There shouldn't there shouldn't be a situation where they are solely dependent on the owner chucking money in to, to plug any holes. The club should be self sufficient, which I mean looking at the the accounts from the last few years it evidently is. Um, so as long as that continues along that path, then kind of almost sort of business as usual, I guess. Mm. And just before we ask Adam the, the final fans question, Simon, what's, what's your view on Gal? I mean, are you excited about the future under him? Are you nervous about the future? This is probably more as a fan than a journalist. I don't really have an opinion, which is not what you want on a podcast. <laughs> I hope for the best and naturally expect the worst because that's what you're made as a Southampton fan. That's what you are. There would be nice to get some clarity on his plans for the club publicly. Um, as, as, as Steve mentioned, what he sees this as being because you don't spend that much money on something just for the hell of it I, I feel like there's going to be more that comes out when Saints go to China before the next season and it has to really because as much as they get up every night and watch it or fly back for certain games and go straight back that evening because they care about the club but why is it that they care about the club mm. if I if I bought Hebei China Fortune it would be for a reason it's not because I'm a massive fan of the Chinese Super League I'd have a reason behind it because I have no connection to the area other than that wanting that item, that that business. So, yeah. But I, I guess maybe it's because when you work in the football industry, you just kind of switch off from everything because you can't think that the guy that you're interviewing is earning your annual wage and probably the time you're speaking to him. Mm. You just you just you just have to switch off from that kind of thing. So I guess maybe that's why I don't have a really big opinion. Maybe Adam's different, but I just I'm just biding my time really. Yeah, no, fair enough. Um, all right, and then Adam, the the, the final thing that um, he spoke about with you, um, Kruger, was just around the the potential Switzerland-Austria um, sort of link with Saints. Um, so Saint Shah One, at Saint Shah One, said, "Is Gal potentially buying into another club slash league in the best interests of Saints? I feel it is personally, but is it a suitable league for us to be looking at players partnering with?" Oh, well, I mean, I don't know that much about the Swiss and uh, Austrian leagues. I would probably leave that to Mr. Grant, who has an encyclopedic <laughs> knowledge of uh, world football um, far greater than mine. But I think in terms of the general philosophy, I, I mean, I took a lot of what Ralph has said when I pieced together what he said in January and what he said again now. 
uh, and when the Gao situation was bubbling up um, before before it got finalised, in the um, in the, the the Gao family, I think will invest in Southampton Football Club, but I don't think that their investment is going to take the format that people. Uh, want now there are reasons why there are actually technical and legal reasons why they can't just throw money in uh, into a pot a huge pot to go and buy new players and things like that but actually I think that more underlying than that is to build infrastructure and things for the future so I wouldn't be surprised if Gao gets involved in um, some of the plans for the stadium refurbishment are uh, maybe developing sites around St Mary's and also this idea of a partner club because it is it is from their point of view it is another investment so it does have a business side to it for Gao as well but it is something that helps Southampton Football Club as well and I think that that's where his uh, the, what I'm taking the, the, what Ralph says to mean is that that is kind of where the investment that Gao will make, if he makes it, is going to be pegged rather than, you know, a uh, thought from some supporters that maybe he's going to throw, you know, a lot of money at the team, which again, as I said, is unrealistic. So I think that that's that is where where we are with that, and that in terms of actually the club on a day to day basis, Gao is going to run it the same as Lipe, in that he's not going to seek to take money out of the club. But he's also, you know, not throwing money into the club. It will be a self-sustaining business and, and profits will be reinvested, particularly in the first team squad. And I think that that's where um, probably, though, like I said, we don't know. None of us knows. But probably reading between the lines of what Ralph is saying, that is kind of the future under Gao. And then you can make your own mind up whether you think it's that's a good idea or a sane investment or not. Well, that finishes our final Total Saints podcast for this season. Hope you've enjoyed it. My thanks to Steve and Simon for joining us on this episode. Um, my understanding is you two are both off to the World Cup, aren't you? So just just to finish, what do you what do you think of uh, England's chances? Quarterfinals at best. Um, pretty much same same as same as every tournament. Um, Go on penalties. We'll, yeah, we'll we'll get get through the group comfortably enough, and then it's all about um, all about who we who we get in the in the knockout stages first first proper good side we come up against we'll, we'll lose and everyone will be oh this is a disgrace and there'll be root and branch reviews at, F, at the FA again <laughs> what, what about you Simon were you surprised at the England squad or do you, do you think he's picked the right uh, 23 I wasn't surprised only the fact that I've, I cover every England game so I'm used to hearing what Gareth said so it was, I was kind of expecting that kind of squad um, in terms of what we do out there I have a. I'm optimistic that it'll be. A, it won't be a shambles, uh, and quarterfinals a bit like Steve is probably our, what we're we're looking at getting to. Um, but I've covered two European Under 21 Championships, a World Cup, and Euro 2016, covering England, and I've seen us win two games. <laughs> so I can't. I can't get. I can't, there's not that much enthusiasm in me. Um, just uh, about just I thought we were going to do well at the World Cup last time and we were home before the malaria tablets had finished and <laughs> and and in um, at the Euros I 
I joke, I was, I got to the, I got to Nice very early, so I did my expenses and I said to my German colleague, Jack, I ah, just got to do these before we get knocked out tonight. And then, yeah, <laughs> lo and behold, we lose to a country the size of Leicester. So you wouldn't put anything beyond England, but you, I genuinely think we've got the quality and promise to do all right. And I think it really needs to be seen as it's not really been painted as like this, but for, for whatever reason, I don't deal with the, the internal PR at the FA, but it should be seen as a building block for 2020, really, because we're hosting a lot of games in the UK and it's going to be as close to Euro 96 as we're going to see for a long time, you'd think. So, and I think we can do very well there. So I just hope that we learn from something. It's not too chastening like the last two tournaments. Mm, there does at least seem to be a plan this time. Um, yeah. Southgate seemed for for all that people might argue with the makeup of the squad, with certain players being in, certain players being out, um, Southgate does at least seem very sure in his in his mind as to how he's going to approach it. Which I think I think has actually surprised a lot of people that that Southgate seems to be very focused and and driven and and quite ruthless in many respects. Everyone kind of expected him to be the sort of yes sir, no sir, three bags full sir um, appointment for the FA that was just just going to be a yes man for them wasn't going to cause any issues um but no he's been he's been a little bit of a breath of fresh air actually i think mm. apart from for ryan bertrand who's probably cursing yeah all summer well if he <laughs> if he put in better performances all season he wouldn't have um he wouldn't have had this issue he'd have been a he'd have been first name on the team sheet well, I hope you both have uh, safe travels. Um, Adam, as ever, thanks for joining us and thanks for your continued attendance throughout the season. Finally, just thanks to all of our other guests that have come onto the podcast this season. Thanks to all of you for listening. Um, prior to this episode, we've recorded 37. We've had nearly 30,000 listens in over 90 different countries around the world. So it's been a, a privilege putting the podcast together for you. And Adam and I hope to be back next season with an even bigger and better weekly production. Until then, enjoy your summer and keep marching in. Away days are great, but there's nothing quite like playing at home. The same goes for McDonald's. Maximise your home ground advantage with McDelivery. Order now on the McDonald's app. At participating restaurants, 18 plus, serving times, delivery fee and terms apply. See mcdonalds.com. And there it is. That's as good as it gets on this stage. Nissan Townstar EV strikes again. It's an unstoppable van. Unstoppable! Look, just fantastic. You can actually see the ProPilot technology in action. Effortless parallel parking. It moves with all the confidence that comes with a five-year warranty. And with a bench full of all-star van experts, there's real strength in depth here. That's all-star quality. Search Nissan Townstar EV and visit your local all-star van centre to see for yourself. Terms and conditions apply. Five years or 100,000 miles, whichever comes first. ProPilot is an advanced driver assist technology. Driver's responsibility to stay alert, drive safely and control vehicle at all times. This podcast is proud to be part of the TalkSport Fan Network. TalkSport. Powered by fans.